We are in week three of a teaching series called What Now? Uh, And this is a a series that was specifically designed for a post-Easter context. This idea, uh, if you were here two Sundays ago, walked through this introduction, uh, this sort of imagined activity, putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples and those who are following Jesus post-resurrection, post-ascension, trying to figure out what now? I hope you have been, if you've missed in person, either of the last two Sundays that you've been able to catch up via our podcast. We started again two weeks ago with an intro to the series that I did. And last week, uh, I taught through pretty much the entirety uh, of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And so today, we're going to continue on with this series, week three. And we are going to, again, dive deep into a couple of chapters of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles with you, physical Bibles, really want to encourage you to open those to Acts chapter 3. So we're just continuing on Acts chapter 3. If you have a Bible app on your phone, Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We will have uh, all these scriptures on the screen today. Literally, there are no slides other than these scriptures. And so uh, if you're a note taker, you're going to be on your own to decide what I say is important and what's not. There's not going to be any help on the screen. Uh, So with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and and dive in. I Also, oh yes, also, if you are opening your Bible app on your phone, I would encourage you to use the NIV because that's what will be on the screen. It'll just make it that much easier to follow along. So last week, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus, the 120 that were remaining after all was said and done, and we talked about how there were about 15 men and 105 women among the followers of Jesus and how they waited in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem for 10 days uh, between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost and how on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit came like a powerful wind and tongues of fire and the disciples began to speak in foreign tongues and the Jews who were in Jerusalem from all over the world gathered together and heard the disciples speaking in their, in their native languages, all different tribes, all different nations and how the gospel was preached by Peter and it gave birth to the church. 3,000 people were added to their number in one day so they went from 120 to 3,000 in a matter of one day, and the Holy Spirit was moving in power. And then at the end of Acts 2, we talked about how Luke says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread together, that they had everything in common and no one was in need, and they met together with glad and sincere hearts and gave praise at what God was doing, and that they were in awe and wonder of the miracles and signs and wonders that were being done through the apostles. So there's a lot going on. A lot going on in a very short period of time. The Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, and the church starts to live out its mission and its calling. And it starts to behave like the church, the body of Christ. It starts to represent Jesus to the world and to those all around those areas. And so we're going to pick that story up today in Acts chapter 3. And again, Acts is written by Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Luke-Acts is really basically one cohesive narrative. If you were to read the Gospel of Luke and then you just flipped over and started reading Acts, you would notice it follows a very specific symmetry. It has a very specific rhythm and pattern. And we know that Luke was a doctor, and we joked about that last week with the the death of Judas and the graphic description that Luke gives 
uh, of the death of Judas. And so with that in mind, Acts chapter 3, and I mentioned a few weeks ago, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, if not my favorite. My favorite story in all of the scripture is the story of Joseph found in Genesis in the Old Testament. But my favorite chapter aside from that is this Acts chapter 3, specifically this first chunk. So I'm just going to talk through it. Uh, you're going to hopefully learn something today. And if you don't, that's your fault. So, um, so let's, let's go on this. So Acts chapter 3, let's get started. Verse 1, and again, these will be on the screen. It says, One day, Peter and John, so two of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John were Jesus' inner circle amongst the 12. So you have two of them here. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon. Now, real quick, at this point, all the people that had become what we now know as Christians, right? They weren't called Christians yet. These were all what we would now call Messianic Jews. So 100% of the church at this point is, are Jewish converts. As we get later into Acts, you'll see the gospel preached to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles begin to accept it. Pastor Jordan will hit on that in the coming weeks. But as of right now, these are all Jewish people who've recognized that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Torah the long-awaited Messiah, that he didn't come in the way that they thought he would, he didn't act the way they thought he would, but he was, it was the promised one, and he has fulfilled the scriptures. And so they are not living some sort of like new revelation of life. All they're doing is living the way they always lived as good, faithful Jewish people, now recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And as such, you still see them following Jewish customs and Jewish law. So that's what this is talking about. They went up to the temple. The temple was, we don't have time to go into all of that today, but they were still going essentially to church, to synagogue, as they always had as good, faithful Jews. And they're going at three in the afternoon. There were two times per day that all Jewish people were, were required generally and were faithfully devoted to doing so to go to the temple to pray. One was 9 a.m. and one was 3 p.m. And so they're going in the afternoon, imagine it like this, they're just on their way to church. They're just on their way to church to do what they've always done. So keep going. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple court. So real quick, this was a man who's sitting there. You can imagine if we have a few weeks ago, we gave out those care bags and we asked you guys to put $5 in those and hand those out to people that you'd see who were standing on the street corners, which is incredibly frequent and common these days in Des Moines, uh, who are asking for money or you know they're homeless, they're asking for things because they're in need. And so this is not a dissimilar situation that this man was laying from birth, which meant that he was... Uh, in trouble in terms of being able to earn a living, he wouldn't have been able to earn a living. And in their view, he, his uh, infirmity was basically linked to that he had done something wrong or his parents had done something wrong. So there was some sort of like shame and sin attached to it. And so nobody really wanted a lot to do with him, but he was in need. And we know lame back then basically meant there was some sort of deformity in his legs from the time that he was born. So imagine him basically as a paraplegic. That's probably the best way you can imagine it. Maybe he had some feeling and a little bit of movement, but it wasn't enough that he could really do anything functioning with his legs. 
And so, because his friends or him or whoever figured this out, they were intelligent on some level. So they figured, hey, we don't have a, you know, uh, we need to beg. We don't have enough. And so where's the best place to go to guilt people into giving? Well, let's put them outside church. Seems like a good place to go, right? And so also it was required of Jews, and this is Old Testament throughout, to be kind to the poor, to take care of the orphan and the widow, to do certain things. And so they were compelled genuinely by their, you know, uh, devotion to Yahweh to actually help people like this. So it's kind of a double whammy. They're thinking best place to go is probably church because they're going to, you know, they're supposed to give and we can kind of guilt them into it. So he would sit out there uh, begging in front of the temple courts. So imagine this scene. Peter and John are just going about their daily habit just like you would be. You're coming to church here at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning just like you're in the custom of doing. And they get there and they see this man. Uh, who's laying there, is lame for birth. It says he was put there every day to beg from those going into the temple because, again, they did this nine and three every single day. So when he saw Peter and John about to enter, and we have no reason to think that he knew who they were, that they were of any, you know, certain, uh, that they were special in any way. He saw Peter and John about to enter, and he asked them for money. Peter, note this, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. I don't know if you've ever done this. I'm not saying any of you would ever do this, uh, or me. I'm sure I've never done this. But when you pull up in your car and you get stuck at the red light, and you're the first person, and the guy asking for stuff's right here, and you're trying, oh, I dropped something. Oh, let me get that. Or, oh, I got to fix my radio. Or, or, oh, kids, be quiet, even though they're not talking. Be quiet, whatever. You're doing something, right, to avert your eyes. You're doing something to sort of make it not awkward. And in doing so, what you're actually accomplishing is you're not actually seeing the person. You're not actually looking at them. Because you're going to feel awkward, especially if you don't have anything to give them or if you decided not to give them something. And we don't need to go into all the reasons for that today. But what you're doing is trying to not lock the eyes with them. And why is that? Well, because it's awkward. Because you might feel a little bit embarrassed. You might feel a little bit ashamed. You might feel something that you don't want to feel uncomfortable in some way. And so what you do is you avoid eye contact because you don't want to see them. Because when we look into people's eyes, we're forced to start to think. We're forced to start to really see them, and you might start to wonder, right, what's this guy's story? What's this gal's story? What, they've, what have they gone through? What's going on? Like, yeah, maybe they are kind of scamming us, but, like, think about how low you have to be in life that you're willing to stand on the street corner with a sign and face that shame. None of us, I'll tell you right now, I mean, I, I can't imagine getting to that point, right? Just be too embarrassed, but they're at least willing to do that. So we avert our eyes. We don't want to look at them, and that's why this is so interesting here, because Peter and John, it says they looked straight at him. They were willing to see him. They were willing to engage with him. They were willing to embrace the discomfort, the awkwardness, right, of the situation. They weren't shying away from it, so they looked straight at him. And then Peter says, look at us. So he invites the man because, again, this is a guy who's been put there every day, and he's lame from birth, which they would have viewed him as cursed in some way. And so he has shame that he, he probably in his own mind felt that he was far from God, that he had done something wrong, or that his parents had done something wrong, or somebody had. And so 
he's in shame too, but he still needs to eat and he still needs to survive. And so he's forced to do this, right? So he's sitting there. So Peter and John are willing to look at him, but then they invite him to look at them, which implies, right, that his head was probably down, that he was ashamed, that he was embarrassed, that he didn't feel like he was worthy because here are the people who are devoted followers of Yahweh coming to church to pray, and clearly their lives are holy and they're righteous and all this stuff, and I'm just a lame man, a beggar who has no value to society, and nobody really wants to know me, and so I don't want to make it awkward for, for them either, and so I'm just going to keep my head down. Can you, can you imagine this? Can you just imagine this scene, right? You can put yourself in whoever shoes you want. If you want to be Peter and John, that's great, but maybe imagine yourself as the man who was lame from birth who's sitting there begging in front of the church and what that would be like. So Peter says, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. So he gets his hopes up, expecting to get something from them. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. And the joke is, I've heard this many times, silver or gold, I do not have because we are pastors. We, we, we don't have any money to give you. We are paid to do ministry, and so therefore, we don't have much. But this is one of the, to me, just one of the most if I said, like, there's a couple things in my life I've prayed into for a long time that I pray about, that I've tried to really just ask the Lord, like, what is going on? Things I've prayed for in my own life, for the life of my family that I've wanted to see come about in the kingdom of God. And this next verse is one of the things that I think about all the time, repeatedly. He says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give you. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. I don't know if you can fully grasp that, and maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm weird and, and whatever, but it's so powerful to me. I don't have any money, but what I, I have something better. What I do have, I give you. And then he doesn't pray for the guy. He doesn't lay hands on him. He doesn't try to do anything, you know, like he doesn't say, can we get the lights dim and some soft music playing right now so we can really set a mood and an atmosphere that we can really commune with the Holy Spirit? And can we do all these things, right? He, just, he doesn't do any of that, right? He just says, what I have, I give you. Walk. And I talk, I think about that all the time because I'm like, I, I, and maybe it's selfish, and, and that's up to God to decide my prayers on that, but it's like, man, I want that kind of raw power. Not just for me so I can, like, make myself look good, but for any of us, for us, the church, like, that we can have this raw power because here's the truth. Nowadays, in 2022, in the West, in the United States, so many churches, so many churches, most churches, they've got plenty of silver and gold. But how many churches have the power to say, walk. I would gladly trade silver and gold, and that's not how it works, and I know that, but I would gladly tra trade silver and gold to have this knowledge. What I do have, I give you. Think about just how did Peter know he even had it, right? I mean, when's the last time that any of us prayed for someone to be healed, and we were like, we didn't even bother, like the prayer, we were just like, walk, 
Well, why not? Because we don't know. We feel foolish and we're worried that it might not work. And I get all that stuff and I've been there and done that and I've had those doubts and all that stuff. But man, I just hunger for this stuff. Like I just hunger for that. And not again because I want to be like known for that, but just because I think it's the kingdom of God. It's what we see right here when the power of the Spirit came. And, I, and I've actually, I actually know of somebody right now, is, he's a pastor over in Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world. I've talked about him before, but I was actually with him. It's a crazy story one time, and this guy is unbelievable. It's, it's hard to even describe the spirit that's in this guy and his relationship with the Lord. But I remember one time at a conference when I was with him, and a girl came up to him and said that she'd had these terrible stomach issues, and I don't know what it was, if it was Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or something. She'd had all these issues for like 10 years, and it was just, it was constant pain and constant struggle and all this stuff. And she said to him, would you pray for me? And she said, this is what I have. And he said, this is, I'm not joking. This is, he said, it's gone. And then the next morning she testified that for the first time in 10 years, she'd had no pain, no stomach issues, no problems whatsoever. And she was like, almost like she couldn't even get her head around it. And he wasn't trying to be arrogant or cocky or some sort of like, you know, acting a certain way. He just knew. He just knew it's gone. No need for fanciful, you know, prayers. No need for all this posturing and all these, you know, what borders sometimes on like weird sort of like, not incantations, but this is idea that if we say the right words, the person will get healed. It was just raw power born out of relationship with the Father and the, through the Holy Spirit. And that's what you see here. Walk. And taking him by the right hand. Right? So he touches this man who was viewed untouchable, taking him by the right hand, continuing on here in verse 7. He helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. If you read this in the original Greek, it actually talks about, it describes basically what would have had to happen, like that everything came together and straightened out because Luke was a doctor, so he understood fundamentally how this works. So it was almost like some really crazy thing. And the man, he jumped to his feet. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Can you imagine just being there can you imagine being him? Can you imagine being Peter and John? Can you imagine being anybody who was just hanging out, expecting to come to church for a normal Sunday morning service? Just the usual three songs and some communion and a sermon, and all of a sudden this guy is healed? Can you imagine how that might throw your day off a little bit? So the man stands up, and his feet and ankles become strong, and he's walking. And then he went with them into the temple courts. And I love this. Walking and jumping and praising God. Can you just imagine what this must have been like for this guy? He had a fully appropriate reaction. He was like, forget about all this sort of holy piety and reverence in the temple. I've just been healed by the power of God. I am gonna walk, I am gonna jump, I am gonna praise God. I, am, I imagine him in some ways, if you remember the story in the Old Testament about David leading the procession with the Ark of the Covenant and how David was dancing before the Lord. And he was just exuberant and expressing himself and kind of going crazy. And everybody was embarrassed, especially his wife. I was like, stop, you know? And he's like, no, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? 
Sometimes the most irreverent thing to do is just to sit there when God's moved, right? Forget about decorum. Forget about social taboos. This guy's just getting after it, and why wouldn't he? So continuing on, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This doesn't mean, and you'll see here in a minute, that they understood what had happened. They understood the power of where it came from or any of that. They're just, their minds are blown because they've seen this guy, but they haven't really seen him, right? They've seen this guy for a long time. Now they're seeing him differently for the first time. So continuing on, verse 11, everybody hanging in there? I told you this is one of my favorites, so I get a little excited about it. So hopefully, I, I'm try, I, I don't know that we'll be able to get through chapter 4 today. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. So verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, I love that. Can't you imagine that? These are the dudes that just healed you in your understanding. Yeah, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you, you might want to stick with these guys. So he's literally physically holding on to them. The way that I think, if I remember right, I didn't read it this week, but I remember right, the original Greek, when it says holding on, he's basically like, like latched onto them. Like, like imagine if I'm standing here and he's like got his arms like wrapped around my arm. Like he's latched on. Like he's holding on to them, and not in the sense of just like casually, but like I'm not letting you guys go. Like I'm locked on, right? Maybe when you have uh, your kids are little, you might, Lincoln used to do this when he was little. You like they wrap their self around their, your leg. Remember that? And you like walk with the kid like on their leg. Like they're, they're holding on to you. That's the, what this it means in the Greek that he's holding on to him, holding on to Peter and John like that. And all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. This is where, again, it just, man, so crazy. When Peter saw this, so Peter sees this. He's watched this guy get up who was lame from birth, holding on to him. People are, minds blown. They come running. Peter sees this and says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Well, Peter, let me explain something to you why it surprises us. Because we've been coming to this church for a really long time. And it's been fine. It's been good. 9 a.m., 3 a.m. prayer services. It's been really good. We like the church. It's, it's great. And this guy's been out there all the time, and, you know, sometimes we throw him, you know, a dime or a quarter or a dollar or whatever, right? And everything is normal. Every, but now something's happened, Something is different. Something has ex, ex, changed. A paradigm has shifted. I don't get it. That's why we're surprised because generally speaking, people who are lame from the time they're born don't just get up and walk. It doesn't just happen. But Peter's like, why are you surprised? I, I'll, I would never, I promise you, if I prayed over someone and said walk and they walked, I would never just be like, oh, why does this surprise you guys? <laughs> like, never would that happen. Never. I would never be that casual. I get, obviously, I get too excited. And so, and I think that's okay, but Peter's just, he's, he's calm and cool and collected. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? Man, I just can't, it's just amazing how full of the Spirit Peter was and how confident he was in his Lord and the ability of the Spirit to do these things. And then he starts 
into another sermon. So we have already seen his first major sermon in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people came to the Lord. Now he's going to make his second recorded sermon. So let's read through that. It's really good stuff, of course. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking to Jews, remember this. So this was, I mean, they understood. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. Not pulling any punches. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You, you killed the author of life. I mean, it's just, yeah, pulling no punches. But God raised him from the dead. And we, and he's talking about the apostles in the 120, we are witnesses of this. Like, we have seen this firsthand. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see, interesting, whom you now see and know, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Continuing on in verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And he's speaking of messianic prophecies uh, throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah especially has a bunch of these. Isaiah 53 with a suffering servant. He's referencing those which they would have known well. Repent then, again, this call to repentance. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him, and he's talking about the second coming, by the way, there. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Second coming. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel. All the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That closes out chapter 3. So Peter gives this sermon. He's in the middle of this sermon in many ways. Kind of getting, I guess, maybe more towards the tail end. Let's pick up chapter 4 because again, there's so much here. I think we'll be able to to make it through. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Peter's giving this sermon, right, to fellow Jews and he's not pulling punches. You guys acted in ignorance. You handed him over to be crucified. You killed the author of life. But look, he still has forgiven you and he's given you a second chance. You need to repent and accept him he will save you. So Peter's saying all this, verse 1, chapter 4, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Let's think about this for a second. Luke names specifically three groups of people that come up to Peter. The priests, 
the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Why would these three groups of people be the three that approach Peter and John? And why would Luke bother to specifically say that it was these three people? What's the importance of that? Well, let's talk first. The priests, right? He's talking about the Jewish priests. He's talking about the religious leaders. These guys were hearing what Peter and John were saying, specifically Peter here, and they're a bit concerned. Why? Because they were specifically the ones who sought to kill Jesus. They were the ones specifically who were looking for a way to hand him over to the authorities, who were looking for ways to manipulate and get him in trouble and always trying to trap him. And you see this in the Gospels over and over again. Usually it's labeled the Pharisees. Sometimes it's called the teachers of the law, which were like the religious lawyers. So if somebody had broken some of the commandments, these guys would be sort of the, like the prosecuting attorney in certain situations. And so these were the guys who conspired along with Judas, and they locked Judas in, but they conspired to kill Jesus because they thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was a heretic. They thought he was a crazy person, right? They had no conception, no idea, no belief that he was who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. So obviously, though, they're there, and they see this guy, right, healed, and now Peter's talking about this Jesus has been raised from the dead. Well, if you're the priest, you'd be like, what? What? What's that you say? All right, okay, so there's the priests. Well, why would the captain of the temple guard be so interested? They were supposed to guard the tomb, right? They were the ones who were in charge of making sure that tomb was sealed. If you remember when Jesus was crucified, all right, some leaders, some authorities, some of the priests, the Pharisees come to Pilate and they say, hey, we know he's crucified, but we remember this blasphemer saying that after three days he would rise from the dead. And so we don't want any of his apostles, any of his disciples to come find where he's buried and steal his body and then proclaim that he's resurrected, which was ludicrous on so many levels because if you know how big that stone was, I mean, there's just no, they just wouldn't, there's no way they could have done it, right? And so Pilate has a very interesting response. It's really subtle, but there's a hint of like sarcasm in it. He says, take a, cat, take a battalion, and he says, go and make it as secure as you can. Right? Go and make it as secure as you can. Like, good luck. Because if this dude is who he says he was, do you think that's going to make a difference? So go and make it as secure as you can. And so we know that something happened. And these guys know something happened. They know that the tomb is empty. And so they're a little concerned. Right? For themselves, like, wait, what do you say? Right? And the third group is the Sadducees. Why are they concerned? Do you know why the Sadducees, what the main difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees were? They were both religious leaders, right? Both sort of priests in the Jewish tradition. But the primary difference was the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection. They believed there was no resurrection. So you've got the priests who are responsible for killing Jesus, basically, the captain of the guard who are supposed to prevent his body from being stolen, and a whole sect of Judaism who believes there were no resurrection. So all three of them collectively are quite interested in what Peter's having to say right now because they also know, and we're going to get to that in a second, they're like, this is like a fisherman, and this dude was like a tax collector, and this guy was like another fisherman and another fisherman, and they're like, what's going on here? This is crazy. 
Because they also would have been aware of the day of Pentecost, right? We're, the same, we're in the same place. So they're like, wait, they only had a few. Now they've got thousands, right? So they would have taken notice. And then it says, I just gave you the whole thing with that, but verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. All for different reasons, but they're all disturbed. Then they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000, right? So we know that 3,000 people were added on the day of Pentecost. Now here's another sermon. Peter says that it's not very long. These authorities grab them, throw them in jail, but it's too late because there's already been a whole bunch more people who've believed. And so now Luke numbers just the men who are believing at 5,000. That's just the men. Now, the way it worked back then was that if a, if a father, if a man in the family, the, the patriarch, if he came to Jesus, everybody else in the family would too. That's the way that it went. And so if there's 5,000 men. It's hard to even figure how many women and children there would have been too. So we have from 120 to 3,000 to let's just, let's just conservatively say 12,500 in a very short period of time. So the Holy Spirit is just moving. So the next day, verse five, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Now these are like the you know, upper level guys. These are the top of the top of the top. So Luke's just pointing out like, they brought together like you know the big dogs. They're calling in the big dogs at this point, right? These aren't low-level dudes. These are top-notch rulers. Annas, the high priest, I and mean, that's a, that's a, you can't get any higher, right? That's the pope, basically. For Catholicism, Annas was to Judaism what the pope is to Catholicism. He's the high priest. And Caiaphas, John Alexander, and others of the high priest's family, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And I love, man, I love Peter's response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Jesus had told them when he uh, was giving them their sort of like marching orders that you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and throughout all the ends of the earth. He said, you're going to be brought before rulers. You're going to be brought before authorities. And they're going to want to know what's going on. And they're going to be upset. But don't, and don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't sit there and bite your nails, Right? And don't sit there and like worry. Just know that the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say when the time comes. Just rest easy in that. So here we go. Doesn't take long for Jesus' prophecy to be fulfilled. And here's Peter brought before the top end people. Then it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. I love it. You and all the people of Israel. Peter just seizes this moment through the Holy Spirit. You're bringing us here? All right, here you go. You want to know? Here you go. Know this, people. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. 
Jesus is, and he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy here, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone in ancient buildings was this massive, massive rock that they put in the corner to establish a foundation for the rest of the home. If the cornerstone wasn't set right and wasn't in order and placed properly, the house was, was going to be messed up. It was going to be something that wasn't stable. So that's what they're talking about is they're using this imagery of this cornerstone, this massive, big rock. These things were thousands and thousands of pounds. And they would place them before they built a house to ensure the stability. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. You said he wasn't good enough, but now he is the rock, the foundation on which everything is built. Salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is a problem nowadays. In 2022, if you haven't figured it out yet, Christianity, the thing that people dislike, I think, the most about it, this is just my opinion, the most about it are our claims of exclusivity. That's the number one objection people have. People are cool with you if you say, I believe in Jesus and I like this and I do this or whatever. They're cool with that as long as you don't say, oh, and by the way, (laughs) he is the only one through whom salvation comes. Salvation is found in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We live in a relativistic, pluralistic society, and they will reject any claims of exclusivity. So I just want to remind you briefly, to make no mistake about it, if anybody tries to tell you otherwise, they do not know what they are talking about. That the Gospels, that the New Testament makes incredibly clear, and here is a perfect microcosm of it, that Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by him. You don't take many paths to the same place. None of that stuff, okay? And I'm not trying to, like, go off on a rant, because I know most of you already agree with me. I'm just reminding you, if everybody ever asks you, yes, Christianity is exclusive in the sense of its claims, right? Anybody can become a Christian. There is nothing, right, that can separate us from the love of God no matter what you've done, even if you've lit stuff on fire in alleyways, right, or bought lighters or whatever else was going on. Like, you can still come to Jesus, right? And so that is not, it's not exclusive in that sense, but it is exclusive in that it's only through Jesus by which we're saved, and all right, let's go on. We're getting we're getting there. Acts 4, 13 through 17. When they, speaking of all the high priests and the leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I don't have three takeaway points for you today, okay? We're walking through Scripture. What I trust that the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart however the Holy Spirit needs to move, and hopefully you're receptive to that. So all of us today may walk away with something that, from these two chapters that's really impacted us. But I do want to say this. Well, people, can people look at you 
When people look at you, do they take note and say that you have been with Jesus? I don't care, and the scriptures don't care, and God doesn't care about your education level, your socioeconomic status, what awards or achievements that you've done in this life, your success in business, whatever it is, like, right? That none of that stuff, when it really comes down to it, matters. Can it be great? It absolutely can. I'm not taking away anything from any of that. But what I'm saying is that's of secondary importance. And by a long shot, the primary thing is when people look at you and they see how you live your life and how you respond in certain situations and how you act differently, do they take note that you've been with Jesus? Or at the very least, do they wonder what's different about this person to the point that they want to know and then you explain, it's Jesus. I, by myself, and I don't, I don't have a lot necessarily to offer. I'm just an ordinary, uneducated, unschooled, average Joe, but through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given me the strength to live life differently. Something that I think about too, for myself, do people think, do they take note that I've been with Jesus? I think that is, man, if you could sum up so much of the Christian life and just put it into one statement, that would be a lot of it. Have we been with Jesus? Are we with Jesus? Continuing on. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone, this is classic first century ancient Near East uh, hyperbole. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. They couldn't deny it because, again, these are just ordinary guys. We know they were with Jesus, and here's this guy who was lame from birth. Like, that's pretty straightforward. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing, so even after, this is what's so crazy to me, and this is where we don't have time to go into today, but this religious spirit is so powerful and so deceptive and so wicked because they see all this evidence of the hand of God and the beauty of the God's kingdom right in front of them, and they even name it right? But then their conclusion is, but to stop this thing from spreading any further, how would you want to stop it? Well, it's because it threatened everything that, that they believed, that their lives were built on. So to stop it from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Verse 18, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, exclamation point. I don't know if you see that on there. Exclamation point. You be the judges. I love it. As for us, I love this, man. I told you that I love these two chapters. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Maybe point two today, is this true of you? Can you not help speaking about what you have seen and heard? Are you like the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament who said, you know, every time I talk about God, people don't really like me that much, and so I'd prefer people to like me, and so I've tried to stop talking about God and how glorious he is and the power that he has and all these things, but he says every time I try to stop, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. 
and he says, I'm weary. Like, I can't, I'm, I can't hold it back. Like, I just can't stop. Is that true of you? I mean, how many conversations do you have during the day? And I am as, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. How many conversations do you have every day about some amazing food you just had? Like, this is, even the other day, someone said, Emily and I were talking about food. We work together, we're talking about good food, and somebody's like, I hear you guys talk about food all the time. I'm like, well, that's because it's good. <laughs> and it's, I like talking about it. And that's fine, you can talk about food or how much you talk about whatever else it is. But can you not help speaking, right, about what you've seen and heard when it comes to Jesus and your relationship with him? One of the things that I see happen so often, and I lament this some, and it's not, believe me, this is not to shame anybody in any way. And, and I do this too, but sometimes it's like we sing these powerful songs that Tim and the worship team lead us in, and we take communion together, and then we hear a message, whether it's myself or Pastor Jordan, and we do all this for 90 minutes, and then by the time we get to the lobby, we're like, oh, you know, what, what time are so-and-so playing today, or, or whatever. It's like the, everything just shifts like so fast. And I'm not saying there's anything fundamentally wrong with that, but I wonder, like, man, we've just, we've just seen and heard and worshiped this powerful, glorious God, and, like, instantly our conversation switches to what's for lunch. And I'm not, again, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that, but it's just this idea that, like, can you not help speaking about what you've seen and heard? So Peter's like, you can tell us. It really doesn't make a difference. And he's not being rebellious. He's not coming... Like, ah, uh, you know, I'm just going to rebel against the government. Bring down the government. It's corrupt. It's wicked. He's not doing any of that, per se. He's just saying, we've got to obey God. After further threats, verse 21, they let them go. After further threats, I don't know what that looked like. I just like how Luke sums it up. After further threats, they let them go. Like, we're going to make you drink hot dog water. Maybe that was one of the threats. Like, I don't know. But... Some of the, if you weren't here last week or didn't hear it, sorry, that went over your head, but everybody else gets it. Uh, they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Tim, if you guys want to come up here, close here in just a couple minutes. Thanks for sticking with me today. Um, I get excited. All I have are just the scriptures. On these, I don't have any notes, so what? That just means that like I don't. I probably should have planned things to keep it tighter, but I just get excited, and so just talking about stuff, and I appreciate your patience. So, on their release, verse twenty-two, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they told them like, hey, they told us not to talk about anything. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord. They said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they're quoting here a psalm. It's early on in the psalms. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Basically like, why? Go and make it as secure as you can. Basically, good luck with that. You want to rage? You want to come against? You want to try to stop? Good luck with that. Because this is the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And what he has spoken, what he has said will go forth, cannot be thwarted. Continuing on, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together 
with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. I love this. They're threatened with consequences if they preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So Peter and John tell the church this is what was said. They pray, and here's this last piece of their prayer. Instead of praying for safety, instead of praying for protection, instead of praying for comfort, which I probably would have prayed for, here's what they pray for. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Instead of shrinking back, they pray for an increase in boldness. They pray that they would press through any fear they have and empowered by the Holy Spirit, they would even more so testify to the name of Jesus. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Maybe point three for today. Again, I didn't have them, but is this. When's the last time you prayed a prayer similar to this in your own life? We pray for all kinds of things that we want, that we need, and those things are good. You should petition God for those things. There's plenty of biblical precedent for that. But you have an early church praying, enable us, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Great boldness among my colleagues and my coworkers or my neighbors and my friends and my family, not in an arrogant way, not in some way that tells them how wrong they are and how right I am, but with just great boldness, right? With kindness and gentleness, but just let me not shrink from the moment. Let me not be afraid. Let me not make excuses. Let me pray or let me speak with great boldness. And also, would you begin to do miracles, signs and wonders through me, through our church, through those around me, would you give me boldness to pray for people when they're sick and not worry about how I'll look? Because it's not me doing the healing anyway. In Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I don't know if that was like an earthquake or, or what exactly, but it was shaken. Something was going on and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the infilling comes, fresh fire, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Man, it's just an amazing couple of chapters, isn't it? Now here's where it comes to a close. After all this has happened, after Peter and John have healed this man who was lame from birth and people have been blown away by the fact that this happened and they've been brought before right the the high priests and the religious councils and all the readers leaders and thousands of people have come to Jesus through this and they've been threatened and then they've decided to pray for boldness all this it's just a whirlwind has happened right this is the birth of the early church look at how Luke closes out chapter 4 how he basically sums up what now so we have like what now phase 1 with Pentecost and the birth of the church and these first four, three and a half-ish chapters, these last four verses sum it up. He says this, after all this, here's how they continued to live day by day. All the believers 
were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That that was their response after all this. And he continues on, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Just an amazing picture. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, and this is, they, they bring him up, Luke brings him up here because he eventually became a very key figure in the New Testament. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Just such a powerful picture. I hope that as I went through this today, as we went through this together and we talked about different stuff, that you were able to just imagine yourself there, that you were able to think about that in terms of the implications it might have for you. Because there are behaviors that the early church modeled that are still supposed to be modeled today. And oftentimes we excuse them away or we make justifications for why this can't work or that can't work. And sometimes there may be some validity to some of that because of the way our culture is. But here's the reality. The reality is most of this is still the way we're supposed to operate. We're still supposed to talk about Jesus with great boldness. We're still supposed to have his word in our heart like a burning fire where we can't hold it back, where we can't help but testify to all the great things that he's done. We're still supposed to consider nothing that we have as our own, but all the Lord's and that we're able to give it away and distribute it to those who have need in our own communities. There'll be no needy persons among us. We're still supposed to meet together on a regular basis with glad and sincere hearts. And we're still, still supposed to be utterly transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit where we say, man, I don't have a lot of silver and gold, but I've got something else that has a lot more eternal value. It may not be a lame man walking, but it might be a dead person coming to life. As we've said here many times, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. And that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the message of the resurrection of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is worthy of it all, and that we have to give all we are to him. There is no in-between. So my challenge for you this morning is really the same as it was last week. If you've been on the fence, it's time to get off the fence. If you've had one foot in and one foot out, it's time to go both feet in. If you've been just hanging out in the shallow end, dipping your toes in the water, and it feels nice, it's time to submerge yourself fully. I don't know what that looks like for you exactly, but what I do trust is the power of the Holy Spirit to communicate that to you. And if you're feeling like that's to you today where you've been like, I believe this thing, but I've just been straddling the fence. I've just been kind of in between somewhere, but I'm ready to go all in. Please, please, please don't wait to reach out to myself or Pastor Jordan. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to do whatever we can do to help you in your journey. So let me pray. We'll close and get out of here for Mother's Day. Jesus, thank you that you gave us, that you promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit and that 
your promise as with all of your other promises was fulfilled and that now we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we are a body of believers, your body, who empowered by the Holy Spirit can still do these things that were done 2,000 years ago, that these aren't a distant memory, that these aren't ancient history, that these are for the here and now. We want to see lame people walk. We want to see sick people be made well. We want to see those who are bogged down in depression be set free and come to life. We want to see those who are far from you be brought near. We want to see those who think there are many different paths or many different ways recognize that there is just one way and that you are it. We just celebrate that you have made a way where there was none before. We give all glory to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.